Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are especially delighted to be uh, joined by our mutual friend, Paul Netaliski. And we're going to do something that we haven't done on the program with before, which is to uh, uh, talk about uh, a film series or, 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 or a television show. Uh, we're going to talk about media, partially because... Uh, uh, partially because uh, it is our collective judgment that a lot of uh, uh, conservative or Christian media analysis is uh, uh, less than less than satisfying out there, and we would like to do what we can to remedy that by having a, a good conversation about a, a piece of public media. Uh, uh, Paul, you know, before we get into that, I guess uh, maybe we could just ask. You know, you can say what it is that you do. Why would we be talking to you? Uh, Paul is one of the tallest analytic philosophers in America. That's one thing to know about him. Uh, uh, what what else can you say about yourself? Oh, your your. Well, first of all, I'm I'm sitting down, so you can't tell how tall I am. But um, yes. it's true. No, I uh, I'm a philosopher. I work at a research center at the University of Virginia. And as to why you're talking to me about this, I I have that same question. Um, it's going to be. I think it's going to be interesting either way. So I, I'm glad to be here and looking forward to the discussion. And by the way, let me just say, um, my internet connection is unstable, so I may I'll hop back as quickly as I can if I get logged off, and I, I apologize. Oh no worries, no worries. We uh, this is this is the world we live in. These these interviews have had uh, a couple of hiccups before. Uh, okay. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe one way to get us started really is just to talk about you know the problem I just identified. We we want to talk in a moment about the the recent Netflix series Midnight Mass. Halloween just happened, uh, uh, and so it's an appropriate time to talk about Midnight Mass. But we you know there's a little bit of a need to justify ourselves. There's a lot of pieces of media we could talk about. So why this one? It was one that was intriguing to the three of us, but maybe a. A prior question into getting into why this one is, uh, what is going on with Christian media analysis in general? You know, maybe it's worth talking for just a minute about what are the ways we tend to approach texts like this, uh, and what are you know maybe what's a a a, a, a more sophisticated or, or or wiser way really to approach uh, something like you know this this weird cultural production called a television program. Uh, any thoughts about that to kind of get us started? I mean, I'm, I'm sure like both of you, I have, I have tons of thoughts. I, the conversation um, when you talk to Christians about media is, I mean, the, the caricatures are a lot of the reviews of movies and TV shows that we've all seen where, you know, they're, they're counting swear words, they're counting, you know, you know instances of nudity and, um, once you sort of add up all these things, a score is generated from, from the mere, you know, occurrences of these objectionable events. Uh, but, but in so doing, you know, you, you leave out, well, what is the story about? Why, why are these things being said and shown? Um, you know, is, what's happening with the narrative? Because as I mentioned to one of you, you know, earlier, um, the mere fact that objectionable things are happening in a story isn't enough to really tell you much about the moral qualities of the story at all. I mean, the example of scripture is full of, you know, horrifying uh, events. And of course, you know, we, we're not objecting to people reading the Bible. So the mere fact that something's being depicted isn't enough to create any sort of like moral conundrum or it shouldn't be. Uh, so it, it has to be some kind of deeper, deeper issue. Um, and things get more complicated at that point. I'll let one of you guys hop in here where I just talk for 20 minutes, but 
I think that's kind of like a nice first pass. Yeah. Um, it's not enough yeah. to say this happened, therefore the movie or the film or the song or whatever is can be, can be immediately classified in some kind of ethical way. Right. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, if we look at the telos of media, uh, whether that be plays or movies or TV series or music or cartoons or whatever the medium is, entertainment is the telos. Um, I read an article one time by, ah, uh, oh, it's going to kill me. I don't remember his name. If I remember it, I'll mention it later in the program, but um, famous um, literature dude, George Orwell, uh, where he said, the whole point of a story is to affect the hearer or the listener or the viewer. Of course, he was appealing to the listener at that point, but <clears throat> he said, it doesn't matter if you're trying to strike fear or joy or sentimentality whatever the aim, whatever the vision of the work is, if you accomplish that, then you've successfully successfully produced a piece of media that's worthy of your consideration. Mm. And that's not to say that we throw away our principles and our morality when it comes to engaging media, like you could take porn as an example, they might hit the uh, the the thing that they're trying to accomplish in their little movies or whatever, um, but it's something that's so perverted that you can't imbibe. It's like okay, that's off limits. Why? Well, because it's perverting the thing that it's trying to portray in such a heinous way that it's not actually conveying the truth of what happens when a man and a woman come together. Uh, but my point in saying that is to say this was this particular series midnight mass on netflix was entertaining and it wasn't entertaining because of the blood or the language or the gore or you know the the craziness it was entertaining because of the story and the layers that are built into the narrative mm. and when you can see those registers sort of just subtly work themselves out over how many episodes was it nine eight or nine or seven i think yeah was it seven okay oh, yep. perfect number uh yeah the, <laughs> uh when it works itself out over that long of a series and this was really a scary story but it had that slow burn it wasn't like monsters jumping out of the dark and you're like <gasps> Uh, it really was like building episode by episode. Mm -hmm. It keeps you intrigued and the characters were great. The dynamic was great. The setting, the environment, the whole ethos was great. They're on an island. Um, and these people have like grown and lived and died like generations of ticks in yeah. this island. It was just perfect. So um, on a lot of, on a lot of different uh, I think for one, a lot of different reasons. So one thing to add, I think, in terms of just maybe what's it what's going on in a lot of analysis, I think, of media is I think it can also be overly reduced to the um the kind of conscious intentions of writers and actors. And and there's a reason for that. It's important, like 
media is extremely related to the conscious intentions of writers and actors and directors. And I don't, I don't want to be the guy that, re, that sort of removes that from the equation, but very often we can read things and think, well, there's an agenda here because the author, you know, in this case, there's, this is an atheist, this is an atheist uh, director and writer processing his, his sort of relationship through film to his childhood Catholicism. You know, it's fairly overt. If you go read the articles about the origin of midnight mass, that it's very personal personal project uh, for the writer and precisely along these lines. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I think it's important to say uh, uh, that a lot of what makes media work is more than uh, what is consciously intended uh, through them, consciously intended by a person making decisions. Uh, and I think this is, is somewhat similar to just the way uh, language works. There's a whole, there's a whole, uh, I'm, I'm talking to a philosopher here. So now I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'm going to get this wrong, but my <laughs> own sense, uh, and you can tell me, Paul, but my own sense is that, you know, we could, we could say in a large way that there, there are certain ways in which language is prior to thought. And so you're, you're, you can, you can, at least on a certain register that you can, uh, when I'm trying to articulate something, when I'm trying to say something, I'm grabbing onto handles that I've received and that have their own histories, conventional handles in a way, and I'm combining them to say something. And it's somewhat similar when you tell a story. You know, people do analysis of this. There are only so many stories. And at some point, if you just have a good storyteller, if you just have somebody that is making a story that really is compelling, there's something about the, there's something constraining almost about the grammar of telling mm -hmm. a good story that has really good affect uh, that you actually, it's hard to overload it, for instance, with an agenda. You might have an agenda in working on something that, you know, has a gay character or something like that. But, but if you're making a good movie, that movie will just be about a gay human. Uh, and it will be a good movie because at that point, the, the message about homosexuality is an abstraction goes away. And what we're left with, whatever the audience is, is just a movie about a human being. Uh, and I think that uh, often, uh, I think that often uh, there are a lot of good stories that have this kind of material in it in as much as they just have good storytellers, maybe again, that are motivated by whatever, you know, their beliefs are, uh, but in, in, in bringing it to the narrative actually have to, make it something that's real uh, and therefore can be multiply interpreted and multiply uh, applied in a way. Yeah. I, I definitely agree that um, very often, maybe always in the telling of a story, what is the, the meaning of the story, the movie, the song, um, the, the book exceeds the conscious intentions of the creator. Uh, I mean, think about, you know, Plato's uh, disrespect of the poets was in part because they, he asked them and they didn't know what their poems were about. And I always thought he, that was kind of a, that was kind of a, a bad criticism because, because of this, this precise point. I mean, I think oftentimes when you're creating, you're guided by some kind of feeling or, you know, I want the scene to be this way rather than this way, but you can't always articulate why, like the, the affective import or the emotional connotation or the significance you you have a, you can sense enough about what you're shooting for to make it one way rather than another way, but you may not be able to say exactly why that is. I, maybe this isn't, isn't exactly what you were saying, Joe, but I think it's related. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I what I what I wouldn't want to say like 
I mean, maybe there's three layers. It's like what you intentionally want to do as a, as a director, um, the sort of the feelings, the aesthetic sense that guides, that guides the output that goes beyond what your, your specific intentions. And then finally, stuff that you didn't intend and you weren't even like consciously trying to do that show up and it shows up anyway. I guess you have all three. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think about the agenda component uh, for this specific piece of media. But yeah, that's Maybe we'll that's get worth... to that in a bit. Well, when maybe what we could do is before we get into that, maybe someone, uh, Joe, if you want to do this, uh, or whatever, Paul, what's the story about? So what is, so we're talking about this mass, uh, Midnight Mass. Midnight it's Mass. Seven-part series on Netflix. Let's give the basic plot of the story. Uh, so there will be spoilers for anybody that's yeah. watching this just right now. Heads if you want to see it before you hear our analysis, go Pause watch the it. podcast. Pause now. Yeah. yeah, right. Wait yeah, seven right. hours, come back to the episode. And it, yes. uh, and, it's and a better, it'll be a better... Just for 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 uh, anybody who wants to be aware, I would say that actually it, it is a fairly violent program. There's a depiction of a lot of violence, but actually on the the sexual side of things, uh, unless I am severely misremembering, it was significantly more mild, I think, than most uh, you know mature programs. I, I don't think there was very so much, much so. So much so that I think we should talk about that at some point. Like it feels significant. It feels like it, it was this had to have been done intentionally. Yeah, because uh, given the norms themes of, are often sexual. You know, that's right. Yeah. Prestige television today. So I, I we should come back to that because yeah, that, that's, that's one good. of my big question marks. Like, why is that the case? There were definitely, um, you know, relationships in the film with sexual overtones. Tension. Yeah. So why didn't the director? Yeah, attention. Yeah. So why didn't why why didn't it take us there? I don't know. But we yeah, can come back to that. yeah. So then, Paul, tell us tell us about the series. Try to what's the plot? Sort of, yeah, we'll yeah, throw that on you, Paul. You're yeah. the guest, and, so you tell us the plot. Sure. Well, and you guys hop into you know correct is that where I go go arrive? Um, Thank you for listening to today's episode of Pilgrim Faith Podcast. The Pilgrim Faith Podcast is a podcast of the Davenant Institute. Our previous episodes can be found by going to youtube.com slash Davenant Institute. The project that Joe and I are interested in is using human wonder to fuel the quest for Christian wisdom. We have interviews with authors and have conversations about topics that interest us. If you find that this content is intriguing and sometimes challenging, but nevertheless edifying, and you'd like to support the project financially, then in the comments section of the YouTube episodes, there's a link that you can access and give any amount to help Joe and I continue to produce content like this. We hope that you will enjoy the rest of this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. So the story uh, is in part, uh, one of the main characters is this young man who, um, right at the beginning of the show, um, it is related to the audience that he has killed someone, his girlfriend, um, in a drunk driving accident. He goes to jail, to prison for four or five years. I can't remember how long. He, he's released. He comes back to his hometown, which is on a tiny island. Uh, looks like kind of Northeast Atlantic. It's, they don't really say. Yeah. He comes home. Um, he's racked by guilt. Every night he dreams. Uh, it's unclear whether he dreams or is consciously meditating on 
his loved one who, who died because of his recklessness. Um, he gets to the island. His family's very, very sort of traditional um, religious. They're Catholics. The only church on the island, it seems to be, is a, a small Catholic church. They want him to go to church with them on Sunday. He's like, I'm not really into it. He's, he's lost his faith at some point. Um, and soon we meet the, well, they, they go to church at some point, and they're expecting their beloved elderly uh, priest to be there. He's been away traveling. He's supposed to be back. But instead, this young guy who they don't recognize gets up and says, you know, I'm sorry, Father so-and-so. I forget his name, actually. Can't be with you. He's He was taken ill. He's convalescing on the mainland. Um, I'm sure he'll be back in no time. And so this new priest steps in. And uh, over the next six episodes, seven episodes, the priest uh, interacts with the, the citizens of the small town. He, he encourages people to come back to church. He starts giving very, um, very gritty and real and searching homilies uh, during, their, during their services. And then finally performs a miracle. And he, he causes this young, young woman who's a faithful attender of, of, uh, of the church She's in a wheelchair for life to be able to stand up and walk again. And um, everybody's mind is blown. And just, by the way, we're going full spoilers here, right? So yeah. no holds barred? All the way, okay. no holds barred. Subtle clues are being dropped along the way. You, you know, people who watch a lot of horror movies will realize something something very, very dark is happening under the surface. Um, and finally, you finally, I forget the exact sequence of these events, but... Um, it becomes clear that the priest is adding something to the communion wine, and then finally he gives you, you, you he gives you this. He goes into the confessional booth in the church, and um, he's talking to God. But this uh, functions as a flashback to what really happened. As it turns out, the new young priest is the elderly priest. He had been traveling in the Holy Land, somewhere in the the Near East, the Middle East. And there was a sandstorm. He, he took shelter in these underground ancient ruins and there encountered this strange being, which looks like a giant human bat. Looks like a demon from Gustav Doré or Doré's engravings from, um, from Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm. Exactly like that. Really tall, skinny dude. Looks like me, but with giant bat wings, and I'm naked. Right. Basically, what the guy looks like. It was played by Paul, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but but he has like these terrifying, glowing eyes, uh, reflective eyes, and the the being like is a vampire. That is not said, but that you can tell that's what happens because the thing drinks drinks the priest's blood, and then as the priest is dying, the being cuts his own flesh and gives the priest some of his blood which causes the priest to roll back the clock. And he's young again, he's healthy, he's vibrant. Um, he, he's, he's, he's healthy and young. And, he, and um, he comes back to his parish with this being. Um, and in the course of this montage or this you know, flashback, he is creatively reinterpreting a lot of scripture. Um, and, and so his, his, his narrative of what, of what he encounters in this cave is not that it's a demon or a vampire. He says, suddenly I realized that every time in scripture that people encounter an angel, they're terrified. They're afraid of the angels. And I realized this is what I found overlooked for centuries or millennia. This is, this is an angel. Um, and then there's, there's some uh, riffing on the many passages that 
where Christ talks about his blood and the, and the essential nature of his blood for eternal life, for yeah. eternal life. And he says, oh, this, it, it, this is, I think, going to be a point we need to discuss. But um, the, uh, the connotation, the association that is made is that perhaps this is what Scripture is really talking about. This is the blood that gives life. He's young again. His, his, his ailments have, are gone. And so he comes back and he is taking blood from this, this, um, this angel and putting it in the communion wine. And people are being healed. Um, old people are becoming young, young again. It's regeneration. Not, it's regeneration. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not everything's great. There's a woman who's pregnant and her, her baby mysteriously disappears. And there's no sign that she was ever pregnant. Um, one yeah. of the early warning signs that all is not well in the, in the- Which is, by the way, maybe one of the creepiest things I've ever seen yeah. in a movie that w- had no had no blood or anything. It was just the disappearance of a baby in the womb uh, was somehow very effectively creepy. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and you know, she's having the blood test with the OBGYN and they're like, you're not pregnant and you haven't even recently been pregnant. So what are you talking about? You know, your, your blood is normal and very healthy. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, Guys, interject here if I'm missing part of parts no. of the narrative. So I'm trying to remember what happens next. Um, I think, what is it? He can't go out. So the priest is changing into something like this beast. Is that fair? Does that seem to be what what is suggested? And he cannot go out into daylight. Yeah, he's got the he's got the thirst. Uh, so he's hungry, yeah. and like the soup is not doing anything for him. There's like he can't <laughs> eat normal food. Uh, it's not hearty then- enough. He yes. die, then, he dies at some point in a, out of a sickness and then he resurrects and this is really what kind of sets up as we're you know the, the sort of end of the series is uh is that you 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 do see all the miracles but uh what he what he what he experiences himself is that he dies and because he has the kind of blood in him through the Eucharist or through direct whatever uh, he immediately resurrects and he is one of these creatures, but he's has quote, quote, eternal life. And so yeah. the central tension of, the, of yeah. the sort of show becomes, let's get everybody on the Island at church at this key moment. So that Easter. We can, yeah. So that they've all been taking communion. Yeah. It's Easter, the, the time of resurrection, right? They've all been taking communion for months. So they have the, the, the life, the lifeblood in them so that when they drink this poison, there's sort of a moment of sort of Jim Jones, corporate poison drinking and right. everybody drinks it. Everybody raises up uh, and everybody sort of raises up a, uh, 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 one of these creatures, everybody, not everybody, right. but it, but a large portion of them have their version of eternal life. And maybe to kind of right before we say the very end, because there's a lot of details we could get into, probably a crucial, uh, a crucial side element is uh, all along the way, the priest is evaluating, am I doing the right thing? Uh, is this actually, there's some subplots there we can say or not say, but uh, nevertheless, one crucial element of the film is this um, uh, kind of kind of really pious Catholic woman who is yeah. part of the parish and who is use. She is the most. She's the earliest to discover his the secret, uh, and she's the most excited about it. She she's the most pious on in her sort of Catholic ritual them. Uh, but as soon as she sees, oh, we can do this to all the people and everybody can get this version of eternal life, 
she becomes the most zealot proponent of this sort of move in the community, even more than the priest, such that when the priest kind of has a moral crisis, she thinks he's sort of abandoning his own prophetic office from God. Uh, yeah. And sort of right. toward the end of the movie, what or the end of the show, essentially what, what happens is most people are turned into, you know, have received the eternal life. Uh, but uh, those who are against this wind up burning down every structure uh, in the community such that when the sun comes up, uh, there's nowhere to hide uh, and everybody just gets what happens. They, they have a very they have a very uh, a very inconvenient form of eternal life that can't handle the sun as vampires yes. want to do. Uh, and, the, and the kind of climactic moment is almost this depiction of the final judgment where you see this, this really is the last scene in the movie is you see the sun rising and you see everybody sort of accept we made the wrong call. And 90% of the people who really are kind of old Catholics sort of hold their loved ones and say, well, yeah, we, we, we made the wrong move and they just accept their incineration. The pious woman, on the other hand, is sort of on the shore of the ocean watching the sun come up and she just she's the only person who freaks actually winds up freaking out in the face of death and and very powerfully she starts to dig in the sand at the very last moment she's to to get in the sand to escape her and she's and she's turning back into dust from dust she was she turns yes and and, and i think i guess two people uh, two people. Uh, there's a, a a young girl, the one who Paul mentioned, who who had her her um, uh, 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 her, Baby. her crippled her crippled disability, situation, yeah. her disability healed. Uh, it's her and a young guy. They're in a boat offshore. They're the only people that don't have the disease. Uh, and as soon as it's over, I think literally the last line in the series is, I can't feel my legs. She's unhealed yes. <laughs> from yes. whatever happened with the, this incineration. So that's and, that's sort of the plot. One, yeah. Go ahead. And one more thing. I, I, I meant to include this. So the 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 character who you think is going to be the, sort of the protagonist, the beginning of the movie, this guy who killed his loved one in a drunk driving accident, um, he winds up um, being, I think, one of the first, not the first. I think Bev is the first, the um, the pious kind of uh, school marmish uh, uh, person who helps the priest. But um, he's one of the first to discover what's going on. And as soon as he sees, he hap- he he walks in on the the young priest and the the angel vampire entity. And the angel angel vampire entity immediately jumps him and, and um flies him away. He kills him. Yeah, yeah. he kills him and. And he comes back, and so he's come back as one of these beings, and he is the first to to make the right call, and he takes his his uh, love interest out in a, in a lifeboat just before dawn, tells her this story. She's not sure whether to believe him, but you know, or why you know why have you brought me out here? Are you gonna are you gonna eat me? If what you're saying is true, are you gonna eat me? And if, if it's not true, you're psych- you're psychotic if you brought me out here to kill me. <laughs> really, he's brought her out there, so she'll hear the story and know it's true and then see what happens to him as he takes care of, of his own problem when the sun, you know, peaks over the horizon, which, it, which he does. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the end of that character, you know, maybe episode five or something like that. And it's, it's yeah, worth maybe the, camping on him just to kind of get into a thematic side of it because he, um, uh, 
one of the tensions, of course, is that, you know, uh, this is written again by a person clearly with a very intimate, this is a very much a portrayal of sort of folk Roman Catholicism that, yeah, like there's a very textured sort of, sort of treatment of the church and the parish and the various character, predictable characters in the parish. Uh, but the, this character, you get the sense that the director has written his own sentiments mainly into the character that Paul was just talking about, that it's a, a person who, because what's, what's fascinating about this person who's lost his religion is he's not a, he's not your young 20s atheist who decided that God was stupid and is an apologist for atheism or something. He's a person who's lost his faith and he comes home and there's moments where you can tell there's a kind of vague attraction to maybe there's something, maybe there's something here. Uh, and yet it's almost the central tension of the show is that there's a there's a, a person processing a faith that there's a piece of them that wants it to be true, but a piece of them that can't quite help but read its symbols as sort of hideous. And so, in other words, you know, this no, guy, right. he, he's reading, he, he's, he reading being... he's reading Christianity quite literally as a vampiric religion where we're a bunch of blood drinkers, you know, right. for the sake of eternal life. And he's almost trying to, like, make you feel through a, 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 an alternate myth, as it were the hideousness of that. Uh, uh, yeah, that's one one way of getting at like the center, the way he's trying to create tension, I think, well, in the viewer. No, that's a great observation because tell me if this, if this is what you guys remember too, but um, bef right before he accidentally uncovered the sordid truth and was turned into a vampire himself, he was kind of being brought around. He was going to these Alcoholics Anonymous meetings with the priest who was winning him over because that priest was very good one-on-one. -on -one. Um, yes. talking with people about real life situations and just um, very earnest, um, very unaffected, um, very wise. And, and I, my sense was that this, I wish I could remember these characters' names. I should have refreshed before we, we talked about this, but no worries. This, this protagonist, yeah, this protagonist, he, it seems like he, his, his barriers are kind of crumbling right up until he suddenly realizes, as you were saying, Joe, Oh, it is, uh, this is, this this really is about drinking people's blood and about if there's a supernatural element, it's hideous and terrifying and grotesque. Um, yeah, and he's fully off, fully off the boat at that point. You know, he's back to where he started, if not, you know, even more dedicated to his antagonism. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is that it's it's because I you just picked that up with uh, this guy we're talking about. Somebody should Google his name real quick. Reagan uh, but, or something like that. Oh, I don't remember. It was an R. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember. The Whatever. protagonist. The protagonist. Uh, but yes, so he's coming back after this life-altering sort of traumatic event of killing someone because he was drunk. One of his sins, a vice that caused the death of another person. And so death is very much on his mind as he you know, does his time in the clink. Uh, but when he comes home, he's stiff arming the church. That was for kids. And then you're right. He does start to come around. And then he's like, oh, of course they're vampires. Just when I was coming around uh, to believe in something that could be good about my, my childhood faith, it turns out that they're just vampires. Uh, and so let me go kill myself. Uh, one thing that is uh, I found interesting or not interesting, but sort of revelatory 
at the end, as Joe was mentioning, you've got this sort of phar pharisaical woman uh, that is like completely throwing herself into this new interpretation of the scriptures and what eternal life means and yada, 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 completely supportive of this priest and his agenda. Uh, she starts digging around in the sand because she knows the sun's coming up. And it reminded me like there's a lot of modern uh, sort of approaches to scripture. It's like, oh, well, what Platonism does is they just took the sun and, and replaced the U with an O. Uh, but this really does get back to something I think is important, as strong and as powerful as the entity that is basically a vampire and his influence on this small town, which could have become global if it wasn't for the select group of folks that burned everything down so there's no escape from the island. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, a key point. Yes. Uh, you know, you're, you're facing worldwide extin extinction of what it means to be human. Uh, and the demons win under the guise of this sort of evil or, or this really religious and pious move yeah. towards, and she adopts all that. And then at the end, she's defeated by the sun. Uh, she's literally incinerated by the light. The light overcomes the darkness because the darkness cannot withstand the light. So in face of mm -hmm. all of this power, uh, seemingly, uh, the simple photons uh, that are emitted from the sun that's the cure to the devil. Uh, and it's just it's, like so perfect. Yeah, there is a metaphorical, huh. it was weirdly, I think at a at an almost kind of mythological level, the best depiction of the second coming in divine judgment, I think that I've seen uh, on a screen, like uh, working, I think, I think on the on the affect that it does. One of the things I think that it brings up, and, and I found this just a fascinating theme, because again, this is a person processing, I think, their own Roman Catholicism, their, their heritage. And I do, I do think it is worth asking what the role of the, the kind of gross is uh, in evaluating religious truth. Uh, because inevitably, it seems that cult, for instance, one of the marks in, in a sense of cult is that you do wind up having to sort of hold your nose at some point. You see something that's actually hideous and yes. something in your humanity rejects it. But the, the move is always to say, hold your nose. Actually, the true believers can endure. I was just, in fact, reading about this in the, uh, uh, in the, in the uh, reading about the Holocaust today. And it was interesting how many of the German high officers during the Holocaust talk about, say very overtly, the empathy feelings that they actually have to suppress. Like it's part of being righteous to shove down hmm. my hu human feelings. Uh, and and it, one thing I thought the, the, the writing did very well was make a depiction of uh, 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 you know, yes, everybody was afraid of the angels in scripture, but it was never that the angel, angels were ugly. That was not the sense they violated. They're terrifying. They're awesome. But the sense that, and, and I just wonder if it's, it's it can be said out loud. I, I think the sense that God violates or that the scripture violates or that the, the way of Christ violates is rarely directly the human aesthetic sense. I don't think rightly understood that the human walks away thinking this is ugly. Actually, yeah. what God actually is or what he presents or the way he calls us to is something that the properly sort of firing human 
could say is ugly. Obviously, our our own aesthetic sense can be distorted, so it's not it's not uncomplicated. It's almost like it's almost uh, like a beauty that magnifies our ugliness. So it's almost like that is so beautiful. You get a glimpse at the glory of angels and the glory. Yes, of it's God. my own. It's the dark. I don't want to be exposed. Is usually what the yeah. scripture depicts sinners, and that sort of combines with the other theme. In fact, which is the on the one hand, this question, the moral question it raises is. I think the relationship between religious truth and beauty, I think, is a, is fascinating because, again, I think there's so many religious movements that ask you to suspend that connection. But I would add to that the depiction of Pharisaism, I thought, was very profound because it captures that Pharisaism is not very often we can portray Phariseeism as just a bunch of externals, but they don't have, quote, quote, the internal or something like that. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about this depiction of this woman is that she's actually quite uh, rigorous internally. She actually manifestly, her externals manifest actually a, a large group of internal states, uh, but they actually wind up being pathological. Uh, and so it's not that Phariseeism is, you know, sort of externals versus internals. It's externals mixed with and coming from the wrong internals. And what's fascinating is this woman who has all this rigor, who has all this self-discipline, who has sort of the, 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 the perfect act uh, is actually the one who desires, whose vision of eternal life uh, is actually the most shallow because she's the most excited by vampirism itself. The moment she sees, oh, <laughs> we get miracles, we can have eternal life, and we don't have to face death. This is the key to controlling death. She's all in. And it really reminds me of Paul's statement in Colossians 2 when he's talking about these people that have all these apparently aesthetic uh, 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 kind of um, uh, uh, all these sort of spiritual experiences, people who've seen angels and they've right. they've, they've had all of these yeah. trans worldly things. It's very fascinating how Paul describes them. He says they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh these people script themselves as entirely about escaping the flesh, just like this woman. Uh, and yet what Paul does is he looks at them and says, no, you're actually the worst. <laughs> you're actually the most indulgent of the flesh. And she's fascinating because there's a way in which she was actually, as the end reveals, literally the most attached to the world. All the ordinary sinners are able to die with dignity. She can't die with dignity because she's actually fundamentally attached to the world. And I thought that was a very profound depiction to me. Uh, yeah. Hmm. No, I agree. And I, one of the things that kind of the big um, questions of the significance of the, of the TV show that I hope we can talk about is um, how the tropes and symbolisms of the, of the show um, work today in a way they maybe wouldn't have worked 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Cause I think it, it, I think there's something about the way that it works that suggests to me that things have shifted. That we're kind of in a different moment. Um, but mm. as one tiny way of getting into that and sticking with Bev for a second, I, uh, I'm not totally sold on this interpretation, but something about it seems right to me. I, I, I thought it was interesting that she was the character, uh, maybe character who was the really sort of rigid fundamentalist, um, controlling and judgmental figure. You know, this is a really old trope about religious believers. You know, yeah. this is, I, I think how how you know religious believers were were 
caricatured 20 years ago when I was, or 25 years ago when I was in high school. I, it's not clear to me that this rings as true today. Um, maybe because religion is increasingly marginalized, the really judgmental folks who want to control everyone are radical progressives. <laughs> mm, yeah. And so I, I just wonder, you know, the new Puritans are not Puritans. They're the radical yes. progressives that, that, you know, are, are seeking various means of social control through new moral typologies and, you know, various kinds of quasi-governmental actions. And so I, I, I was wondering, was that a misstep? You know, will, will his audience connect with the, this kind of classic caricature of a judgmental religious person when the people that we would see today who fit this role are not, they're not really religious. They're, they're coming from, a, you know, from another register. Um, but yeah. I don't know, it's part of the, the ambiguity of the, of the work. It's, yeah. There's a mixing yeah. of the old and then of some, some new elements. And I just wasn't sure about well, that I mean, character. It, because in the end, just one last thing on this, you know, sure. her digging in the sand in the end to me suggests it was never really about the, the purity of the religion or um, sort of the, the soul making or, or salvific qualities of religion. It was about being a tool that she could use to say who was in and who was out. And yeah. this is what she was re- briefly reveling in um, when, you know, they, they had gotten people to drink, drink the poison, die, resurrect. She was the ringleader, especially when the priest has a crisis of conscience. She was saying, you guys can't come in the shelter. You guys can come in the shelter. She was, this was the moment she had lived for. It was, it was about power in the end for her. Yeah. Uh, which I think is, it was just, I don't know. It's, I'm not sure what to make of that, but. Yeah. But you're right. You're right about the, today. Oh, Dale. You but I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look at um, the survivors, like Joe was referring uh, to the the little girl that was uh, paralyzed that got up and started walking. And then at the end, she's in a canoe off in the water, watching these little bursts of flames as all of the people that she's known her entire life on this island uh, are in, are being incinerated by the power of the sun because they have no shelter uh, because they burned all the shelters down to sort of contain the the infection. Uh, but that her uh, her she is one of the people that emerges as a hero in some respect because she she played in both fields or she was she was over here receiving the benefits of the um, you know, uh, sort of tarnished Eucharist, and that made her walk again. Uh, And she was dedicated. She was the most dedicated one in the town. You remember the priest was even like, this young lady comes to every mass. She's here in the morning. She's here in the Mm -hmm. evening. She was disappointed when they moved it to the midnight mass because they had no day mass. Uh, And she's the one who made it out. Uh, So the true believer like the true believer, even when, even if she did take the poison, well, no, she didn't take the poison. Her mom and dad did. That's uh, right. No. Yeah. The, so the little she actually, is she does have, she does have the, the Eucharist in her though. Yes, she so, does have the Eucharist, yeah. but it starts to dissipate at the end. And she held out. She didn't buy all the way in right, to all right. of the things. And right. this is the woman who's now looking back on the island of burning family members and friends. And she's losing the feeling in her legs again. 
she's the one who makes it. So I, I wonder what was going on in the writer of this, like what was going on in his mind as he puts that emphasis on her escaping this just absolute destruction, this hell on earth. And what to add to what Paul said, uh, 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 you know, you're pointing out this is a kind of trope from 20 years ago in some ways, sort of the pharisaical Christian lady. Um, um, and right that especially there's there's yeah there's a, a lefty anal puritan analog to this that's well established right now and i think uh as a text in that direction as well it asks the same fascinating questions which is at what point like i think if you are a person on the left uh uh, uh engaged in 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 its projects there is the question of are you holding your nose at something I actually do think uh, most people on the left would do very well to ask themselves, is there anything firing inside of you that makes you go, is this, is, is, is taking that tactic beautiful? Is that actually magnanimous? Is that actually the good? And I would think to get to us to, to the most extreme sort of ends of any of these positions, really, you would have to ultimately engage in a kind of self-serving nose holding, maybe a nose holding for the sake of some perceived benefit. Uh, but in that sense, I, I respect the director that it's sort of like the ultimate moral statement almost in the film is I just reject having to hold my nose if I'm going to get in the program. I just, yeah, that I, that's a, yeah. that seems to be the kind of moral, the moral insistence uh, as it were uh, in, in the narrative voice in this, in this series. Uh, and I guess, yeah, that that uh, it is worth bringing up. Then I think maybe, um, uh, yeah, combining what you both just said, what what do what do we do? You know, we're in a civilization that has retained something of like Christian language scaffolding, right? You know, we've all mm -hmm. we've all read Tom Holland's Dominion. You know, you get a sense of like there's something in the very grammar and DNA of our civilization that is full of Christian symbols and Christian signifiers, you know, even when we're unaware of it, even perhaps subconsciously. Uh, and yet we don't know what to do with a violent Old Testament. We don't know what to do with these metaphors of atonement and blood and death. Uh, and maybe there is a there, maybe there is a, a piece of modern sentiments. You approach these things. You don't. You you only have kind of the signifiers in a loose aggregate way, but you don't have a deep sense of their content and and the idea that maybe they're a bit vamp vampiric. That to to read these ultimately as anything but vampiric is just ideological. Because really, it's it's ultimately not any more elegant than than vampirism. I wonder how, as Christians, do you respond to that reading of your faith? You know that there's a yeah yeah. What's the that? I mean, that to me is the most interesting question about this this series. I um, I'm not sure this is right, but what what the way it seems to me is that it is a a bellwether, or it's an indicator for. The, where we are right now as as a culture, at least in the U.S., um, and and in an interesting way, I think you're exactly right. You know, there's something about our residual moral intuitions, broadly speaking, culturally, that are still Christian. I mean, there, Dale's point about um, the, the, you know, the the young woman who was healed and then regressed, but was one of the two sort of people who survived, who made it to the end. You know, 
seems to be to be held out of some kind of exemplar of purity um, who who didn't you know, she didn't hold her nose as you put it Joe but she um she was a true believer in you know in in Catholicism in the film and in one of the pretty key scenes in the movie she goes to the guy who had was the cause for her paralysis he'd accidentally shot her or I don't know he shot her at any rate yeah. in the back and that was why she couldn't walk and she confronted him and forgave him which was very surprising to me because that is leaning 100% on traditional Christian values. I mean, that is, that is the legacy of Jesus Christ, that you forgive those who have, who have hurt you and done, done you wrong. And the show seemed, you know, Flanagan seems to be thinking this will still play in 2021, um, which is fascinating because of the same. So, so you still have like the momentum, as you were saying, Joe, of, of, something about Christian morality that's still there. But what I think the show suggests is that, um, and I'm not sure how to, how to describe this. You guys can help me if you think this is right. Um, even more of this, of the explicit, like cognitive scaffolding, the symbolism, it either is stripping it away or indicating that it, ha- that it is gone because of its ability to play fast and loose with classic Christian symbols. I think 40 years ago, he couldn't have made the show because people would just would have said, it's utterly implausible that anyone would have been confused that the that these metaphors from Christ, the symbolism of Scripture, yes. could be confused for some vampire. It's just t- completely untenable. But now we're so illiterate about the 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 symbolism or the I guess the the doctrinal and scriptural component of the of the faith that you he can make it make it work like this. And people will be like, oh, man, that's interesting. And they won't be like, yeah. that's completely ridiculous. It doesn't work at all. And so even more of like the logos is gone, but something of like the ethos and then maybe the, even the pathos is still there. And that's something that I think is interesting. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah sure that, it right, does have a it reads people as more than their religion. And that is a very interesting key in the in the film is that uh even at the end, the people, the priest himself, and this is a key moment in the end, the priest himself who unleashes, as it were, the disease regrets it. And most of the people who go along with it regret it. And they all die with dignity. So there's a funny, almost kind of post-Vatican. And there's all this regret. Yeah, there's yeah, all there's the this regret almost too. post-Vatican too. And the Muslims even, there's two Muslims in the town and they play a very beautiful, very fascinating subplot. These two Muslims who have a complicated place in the whole film. They die with dignity doing their kind of final prayer, w- waiting for the sun to come up. Uh, and what's, what's totally fascinating in all of that, again, is that you, you see a, a very sympathetic reading of people uh, as more than kind of whatever religion they can get deceived by. They make a mistake, hmm. they realize it, and they die. Never the, they're nevertheless something about them that's kind of right with the, the whatever the ultimate thing is because they yeah. see it when they've done it. And it really is only the one woman who's the most devoted, uh, who really, uh, who, who alone doesn't really repent in any, in any uh, you know, meaningful sense. Yeah. And it's interesting, Paul, what you were saying is how people are just, how could they, like 40, 50 years ago in America, if you would have broadcast a series like this, people would just be horrified. Like that's what you said was completely implausible. Uh, and before we started recording, Joe and I were talking and Christians were called cannibals in the first century. 
uh, you know, they were sort yeah. of pariahs because they were viewed as people that were eating flesh and drinking blood. And that's weird. And that is eternal yeah. life. You eat the flesh and you drink the blood and then you live forever. What do you, you're a monster almost. And I think that the director of this series really is leaning into that in ways that I think most modern Christians are just not comfortable with leaning into. Uh, and I think he's actually giving more credence to a level-headed interpretation of Christianity that's something other than just drinking blood. Uh, because the drinking of the blood, for all the magic it does in regenerating the cells of the crippled girl, it vanishes. And what does she have? She still has hope. She's still alive. Everyone else is dead. So like those people over there that were misunderstanding the function of the body and the blood, they died. And this person over here, she's still alive. She possesses the thing that the Bible promises in eating, you know, the sacraments. So there really is sort of, I think, uh, I think I would, it would be fascinated. Joe, we need to like send an email to the dude who made the series and ask him to come on the podcast. Cause I really would be fascinated to find out where he's at sort of intellectually, metaphysically, spiritually, what he's doing, like how he's processing the world and reality. Well, how do you respond to that criticism? I mean, how do you respond to that, uh, you know, Paul, you were saying 40 years ago, people would know, quote, quote, sort of know this was ridiculous. And yet, what if, what if, what if somebody could say, well, no, it wouldn't be that they would know that it was ridiculous. It's that they wouldn't be in a place where they could get outside of themselves enough to see mm. the actual hideousness of their own symbols. In other words, how do you, how do you, if somebody really is struggling with these symbols themselves are hideous, how do you say, well, again, do you actually have to say, well, you ultimately at some point have to hold your nose at them, or is there a way to get an ordinary human sort of firing normally? And I don't mean without factoring in sin, but I just mean the symbols themselves to say the symbols actually aren't, they aren't hideous. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think to understand, to understand, understand the symbolism you have to understand where the symbols came from and if you understand where the symbols came from i think it's it's clear uh that they're metaphor that it's metaphor and, and you can only get the hideousness if you if you misunderstand that i mean jesus is saying he is the passover lamb that you guys have been eating for 1500 years and unless you eat unless you eat this you know this flesh unless you drink my blood you have no life in you um, to, you know, and read in the right context, it's, it is a grisly metaphor, but, but the, the intent is so clear that it's just a striking image. And I, what, what I was saying is that we're now in a place where almost no one in the audience is going to know the context of, of where these symbols and where the metaphors came from. And so they'd be like, wait, is this, is this what Christians say? Is this what they do? They, they pretend like they're eating eating people's flesh and drinking blood. Um, you know, that yeah. I think provides a window yeah. for Flanagan to, and this is what, what I found most disturbing about, I'll ask you guys again. Oh, no, you're there. Okay, we lost Dale. Um, what I found most disturbing about the whole series is that I think 
I don't know if he does the does this intentionally, but he what he's able to do in the series is sort of rewire the connections for as you know parts of the popular consciousness, so that when they hear pivotal essential components of Christian practice, they're now going to think about cannibalism and vampirism, and and that's that's what I was saying. Like he just you there wouldn't be a void that would that would permit this sort of creative reinterpretation or, or re- rewiring of, or, you know, re- new associations being suggested for these, these concepts, unless the original basis and context have been lost. Exactly. And so I, my sense is just yes. the tradition has eroded to the point where they're, they're unsupported. And so now they can be freely reinterpreted. And that's what Flanagan is doing. How would even how, while, uh, yeah. But if we kick the can down sort of one step, how would you, you know, you're having the conversation with a college student, uh, the exchange goes this far, but then to a modern sentiment still, yeah, but even the Passover lamb, even the the blood on doorposts, all of that stuff is icky, like to the modern sentiment, like you're still... You're, you're still, you're pushing back the gross one step, but at some point you actually do have to get to like a dude nailed to a cross and there's something grisly about the whole kind of grammar of the way God deals with us. And I guess maybe one question would be, is that, is that something that the human just has to hold their nose at? Or is there, is there a way to interpret those, those sort of meta, meta moments, those meta themes, even behind the Eucharist itself in a way that, that, uh, uh, yeah, that, that can be seen actually ultimately as beautiful. I mean, the answer is yes. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. Well, I, in principle, in principle, but I, I think, I mean, this, that, that question has to do with, I mean, the, 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 the question it comes down to might be why sacrifice at all? I mean, the fact is that every ancient culture practiced sacrifice. And my, I'm not an expert. I'm not a, you know, an anthropologist or I don't study the, the origins of religion. But my sense is that we don't have good answers. It isn't totally clear. Um, it's something that was widely practiced. And the, the ancient Israelites practiced it just like everyone else. They did it to different ends. But everybody was sacrificing. Um, but it's a, it's a moral and religious practice that um, was was undone and made incoherent by by the Enlightenment, I believe. Yeah. And we've yeah. we've very thoroughly lost that that foundation. Um, I think for me and for most Christians, we only hang on to it because we read Scripture, and so right. we we accept this is how it was done. And maybe there are little wisps, little whiffs of intelligibility and in ancient sacrifice. You know, God has people kill animals because they've done bad things. And so you have, here's this system where you have to, you have to take life because you have screwed up and done a bad thing. The blood is on your hands physically because the blood is on your hands spiritually. So there is something intelligible about that, but there's something even deeper that I don't understand. And I think very few people today. today, Yeah, there is an, and there's an inescapability to it in that. I think one of the fascinating things I know, uh, uh, (laughs) I think maybe it was you that uh, uh, showed me the article by Wilford McClay, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, and also Joshua Mitchell's yeah. awareness, you know, American Awakenings. You know, the argument of both of those things is that, in fact, sacrificial structures and atonement theory are still alive and well in the modern world. Uh, it's just that we crucify different people. 
Um, but sacrifice as such, somebody like really, really believing that there are bad things in the world effectively, and that the cost for whatever that is lands somewhere, <laughs> uh, that, that mm. persons bear the cost of that, in fact, is actually a fairly universal human thing. And, it sh- and every culture is uh, organizing itself in such a way that that cost is distributed according to human freedom and reason in some way. Uh, and, you know, what, what Mitchell tries to show is that the Christian cross actually ameliorated violence in an interesting way. One of the things the cross does is actually absorb the sort of, sort of final accounting sheet of cultural violence and that the removal of that creates more the context for kind of pagan cathartic rage. Uh, and actually in a lot of folk religion and in Roman Catholicism, it's I think important to say, well, this could be true of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, or many Protestantisms. A lot of it ultimately reduces down to kind of folk religion. Uh, and those atonement structures can show up in everybody's folk religion in their own way, even if they're combined with the more classical grammar. Uh, yeah. But that's not that's not a huge theory. Yeah, I'm not account, I'm not being Rene Girard here. I don't have a whole theory of a uh, uh, I don't have a whole taxonomy of sacrifice to give. But uh, well, I, and I was talking with uh, Ryan Hurd, which is a friend of ours uh, today about God, um, just what God is. Uh, and when we use words like love, God is love, it's like, okay, I've got the predicate of love, but the subject is sort of in the background, like all I have is a concept of love. And so what do I understand to when, when you say God is love? What does that really tell me about God? Well, it tells me that he's this thing that I have conceptual awareness of called love. And if it wasn't for Jesus, then that would be a really confusing. But I have Jesus, and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb slain before time began. So when we begin to talk about sacrifice, even in the Old Testament with the blood and the door and the whole ritualistic uh, cultic uh, vibe that we get in the, our Bibles, sacrifice is a primary theme. And what I think Paul was saying was we've we've lost the foundation to even understand why sacrifice yeah. is necessary because it relates to love and God is that thing and creatures that are created in the image of God are sort of built with internal structures to manifest those things which reflect the glory of their creator. And the highest principle, the Bible is very clear, uh, is that you lay your life down for your friends. That is sacrifice. Jesus humiliates himself. He takes on, he leaves the glory yeah. of, of the father. He comes down in to his humiliation as taking on a human nature. Uh, and he's murdered on a cross, the lowest form of execution. So I think that what Paul is getting at is something very, 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 very important is that Christians in the modern age need to recover what it meant for Jesus to actually be executed, that Jesus is actually the lamb of God. This makes sense of the entire sacrificial system. Once you understand Jesus as being that type of all of these anti-types in the Old Testament and throughout history and all the pagan religions uh, that you find in the ancient Near East, 
then everything clicks. And that's what I think this guy um, that that pre- uh, directed this series was really wrestling. You can like see the tension, but he doesn't have an intellectual or a rigorous system of theology to help him interpret the religion that he just sort of adopted as a baby and sort of grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. He didn't understand all of the meanings of the symbols and the types and the anti-types that are drawn out through the Bible and history. So the question becomes, is this a is this a Protestant versus Catholic thing? Or, or, or is the Catholic religion sort of, you know, we want to be careful here because we're not we're not sure. here to be polemicists or something, but you know. Is there, but we're Protestants and we're proud of it. So, uh, you know, we can do, it's Reformation Day just two days ago. So, I mean, come on, give us a break. But, uh, but it it is, you know, so one way of saying this, like one thing I think when I, uh, putting together things you both have said is, you know, the, some of the, 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 the harder to witness elements of scripture are A, in light of sin, right? It's like sacrifice and death come in with sin. This is actually a corrective, uh, a bearing of the curse that is, it's, oh, it's ugly. The curse is ugly because sin is ugly. The consequence of sin is ugly. And the, the cross, uh, beautiful on, on one view, is also hideous on another. And that this is yeah. the innocent one dying, this horrible, all those sorts of things. Uh, and yet it's uh, 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 the holding of the nose. There's no holding of the nose, partially because it's a, it's a person graciously absorbing that which I do legitimately hold my nose at. I actually do legitimately hold my nose at sin and death. <laughs> and here's a person yeah. sort of innocently absorbing that. But in the, in the Roman Catholic religion, I guess the question becomes, is there, a, is, there a, is there more grounds for the charge of a kind of, that's a kind of um, uh, uh, aesthetic revulsion. Uh, sort of, sort of at the notion that you're, you, 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 you are. I mean, even yes, we all know transubstantiation. It's the substance, not the accidents. Blah blah blah. We know we, you know, we've we've gone through our philosophical grammars, and we know that it's it's more complicated than just munching on, you know, flesh particles. But <laughs> is there at a folk level though? People that go. To, I was just talking with a friend about this today. In fact. When people go to the Eucharist in, in Catholic context, take that it goes. This is about folk religion all the way to the ground. When when Grandma, you know Guido or whatever, goes to goes to New York City and goes to the goes to the to the, to the Roman Catholic Mass, she's not thinking about the distinction between substances and accidents. She sees a thing lifted up, a little bell goes off, and and. And it seems like in a folk way, there really is the sense that I am like literally the celestial flesh of Jesus is going inside of me and I'm consuming it in some way. Is that, uh, is there a way in which this critique is actually particularly poignant uh, to Catholic symbols? I think even more than sort of Protestant Hmm. uh, ones. Seems so. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, yeah, uh, because it's harder to say you've misunderstood the metaphor because for Catholics, it's not. Hmm. Yeah. Right. It's just the vampire <laughs> blood was just the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as you said, like, I'm not trying to be a political leader. I mean, this is part of why I, I can't be a Catholic. I just think it's a longstanding interpretation, but one that just misunderstood from its inception. What, what Jesus was saying. He wasn't, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, 
I mean, the practice is great and we, we do it too, but the understanding of what the practice is just seems like it's based on a misunderstanding of Jesus is the lamb. Um, you know, his, his blood is the wine or the wine of, you know, the drunk in the, in the Passover feast, um, his blood is a sta- is now standing in there. And uh, how, I don't know, it just seems like a catastrophic misunderstanding. When in fact, your connection to Christ is by his spirit. As soon as you're, as soon as you're uh, regenerate, you know, as soon as you have, have accepted him um, and there's no need for, eating his flesh and drinking his blood in any kind of physical or metaphysical way. Uh, but you know, this is, this is an old, an old debate. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a great point. One that did not occur to me that from a specifically um, Catholic perspective and, and even more, maybe a folk perspective, you don't have to read him as taking so much, so much sort of um, symbolic license. It's just, Except, like you said, it's the wrong guy. Yeah, yeah. He's he's showing you something that looks hideous to you, and the kind of implication is the thing you're doing looks just that hideous to me. And I yes. and it's hard for me to quite tell the difference here. That guy's an angel. Jesus is kind of an angel from heaven. <laughs> you know, like how do yeah. I? You know, exactly what's the difference here? That's uh, what Jacob said. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's an interesting element. So, you know, maybe maybe uh, yeah. Uh, either, yeah, there's a difference in exactly how the, the the critique lands, as it were. Even though obviously Protestants do have a, a, a robust account of the Eucharist and even its relationship to Jesus' body, but it's yeah, it's not for our next yeah. podcast. It's different. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. No, so the, the my question is, uh, this is a this is a series about religion, and in some ways, whether religion is true and um, the struggles that people have. And several of the main characters, notably the guy we're calling the protagonist, his name we can't remember, and eventually it seems his love interest, who's, who's another key figure, Erin, that's her name in the, in the show, they wind up in, embracing something like naturalism, philosophical naturalism. He's a, he's a pretty settled naturalist from the beginning, the, the protagonist is. But the movie is not really about science versus religion. It's not really about right. at the level of, overt conflict between a you know, naturalist philosophy or in a supernaturalist philosophy. The, the worldviews, the perspectives on reality, you know, what happens when you die, that the, 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 the series seems to wind up settling on is something like a naturalist perspective um, that wants to remain hopeful despite it not making sense. But, but there's really not, the narrative doesn't involve that sort of struggle, which is interesting. Um, it's, no one ever really talks about that I can recall the metaphysical status of this angel. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't even know how to read the way the series, the way Flanagan presents this entity. Is it meant to be supernatural or is, are we supposed to think, no, it's just an unknown, fully biological mundane entity mm-hmm. that has always yeah, been confused for angels. Point. This is just not even, not even dug into, which I think is interesting because even 10 years ago with the new atheists you know, out there, it, it would have had to have been presented, I think, in sort of a, a science versus religion sort of thing. But now that that just wasn't the, that wasn't the story. That wasn't what, the grammar. I don't, think, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting observation. That the is. one the one. One of the elements I think I did find fascinating is that. um 
I think to some people, the uh, uh, this is one of those peculiar areas where maybe a philosophical version of Islam uh, actually has superiority over the more pagan looking elements of Christianity. Uh, and so one of the things that is interesting at the end is that you do actually have this, the, 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 symbolically at the end, the two people who really are, are facing God in terms of facing right. the sun, everybody else is kind of just hugging their loved one and looking at the floor, but two characters go to the shore and they face off with the sun and they're staring at the sun. They're really, they're really going to there. And the sun, of course, and, you know, kind of, if we're sticking with pagan symbolism is the ancient, this is, it's hard not to read a little bit of divine uh, uh, sort of metaphor in, in, in the sort of the sun on the horizon. But the, the, the Muslim, the young boy is doing his final prayer. Uh, and and it's, it's almost portrayed as a pure religion uh, to yeah. me. I almost get that sense. Whereas this woman who's kind of the face of the more kind of folk Catholic movement uh it her she's revealed to be a you know or whatever so i actually told somebody i told somebody else like hey you wouldn't believe this but i'm pretty sure this is made by an ex-catholic atheist who's arguing that uh islam is sort of the uh the ultimate <laughs> hot take on religion that's actually yeah. the way to go it's simpler it's less offensive you know <laughs> pure yes. in its own way yes uh, yes but it's a good point but it is ambiguous nevertheless there's a kind of sentimental uh, uh, a compassionate reading of the Muslim, but it is certainly true that like on an, on an overt level, the metaphysical commitments of, of the world building, as it were, it, it, this world that's constructed, is it a world of metaphysical valence, as it were? And that's very unclear. You're right. The creature just kind of comes. It's not clear. Yeah. Yeah. And there's even a connection between the protagonist and the sheriff, who's the Muslim, uh, they both, one of them was murdered by the quote unquote angel. Um, he resurrected and then killed himself with the son. But the Muslim sheriff, he goes out and he sacrificed himself. So he got shot trying to burn down the last stronghold that this, these new species of people that could find shelter from the sun in uh he was trying to burn that down he the muslim is shot. fighting all the catholics <laughs> yes yes and he's a little saves, bit of holy war in here yeah and he saves the world and then he goes and he puts out his rug and dies on the beach as the sun comes up and kills all the people that just yes. tried to kill him and the so son that they're... the son that converts to christianity for five minutes is the one that burns down the last you're right the burns yes, down exactly. the last yeah yes so okay all right so we're we are far past our hour uh but as we sort of wind oh. down here uh let me ask you paul um what are some of the things that you think we can walk away from both uh, and i can make this a really complex question but i'll try to keep it simple but what are some things that christians that are trying to produce good media right now what can they learn from a production like this? And then what are some of the people that would be hesitant to sort of view something like this without violating their conscience? We want to defer to their conscience. You know, don't, don't, don't go against any of the principles that you think that you need to hold on to. But when Christians watch this uh, series, 
what what do you think are the primary sort of handles as joe alluded to earlier that they should grab a hold of and walk away? um yes so on the first question i don't feel like i have a lot of advice for 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 christian media creators or any media creators because i don't know anything about it um i think uh but you're a fan i'm a fan i mean i i i guess I never watch explicitly Christian um, television shows or movies or, or listen to Christian music. I, I, just, I think there was a time in the past when I did, um, you know, contemporary Christian music, this is, I'll try to keep this short, as I think we could all agree, turned into, to, I don't know, simulacrum. <laughs> it became its own genre of music, you know, somewhere in there with like elevator music and easy listening, it just became its own thing. And yeah. Um, Probably no one should listen to it, uh, but it's, but I, I think in the, in the world of filmmaking or making TV shows, if there are Christian content producers out there, tell interesting stories. That's all I have because I haven't thought about it from this angle very much. Um, it's so much of you know when I stopped watching Christian media maybe twenty years ago, the problem was that it was all so didactic. It was mm. they weren't trying to tell stories; they were they were instrumentalizing stories. They weren't even parables; they were it was propaganda. Um, really thinly veiled propaganda. And I don't even, so maybe things have gotten better. I just, I'm not in a position to say. Um, what, was your, what was your second question? That's right around about the time that my internet So yeah, and, so if, 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 if we've got people that are viewing this series, what are some of the things that you would like them to sort of grab a hold of with the, with the storytelling and walk away with? Like, what do you think, not didactically, but key moments in the story that help explain the phenomenon of what makes it so interesting? What are those handles we can grab a hold oh. on and walk away from this story with? I think, um, unfortunately, again, I think I can't give you what you're asking. I think, you know, what, you know, what is it about the story that makes it gripping? It, I don't know. I feel like... Plato's yeah. poets again. I what I what I can I can give you something close to it though. I, part of what I think makes this show so interesting, it stood out for me as as being revelatory of new aspects of the moment we live in. Hmm. Um, and this is not strictly related to the narrative or the literary qualities of the story, but kind of what it means. And, you know, as a text of what what is it? What is it? pointing to, and I think two things there I think are worth thinking about. One we, we've talked about, which is where, asking ourselves, where are we in the state of, of the erosion of public knowledge of the Christian tradition? You know, hmm. the U.S. has been a Christian nation, allegedly, for a long time, and even if we really weren't, most folks kind of had a, some sense of what it was all about, and I think this show, more than anything in recent history, revealed to me we're at a new level. Um, you know, I'm not saying that this is like a declension narrative. I'm just saying, as a matter of fact, people don't, people are, are ignorant of the content of the symbols or the, or the rudiments of the story so that right. it's open for really creative um, reinterpretation like Flanagan does. And secondly, we didn't talk about this very much, but we touched on it. I feel like there's something significant about the fact that the science versus religion polemic didn't come up. It, I don't know what it means. I'm still thinking about this, but the fact you have angels or maybe a demon um, whose blood can give you sort of a renewable, if not eternal life, 
and that that issue the sort of the, this mm. um like modernist chestnut doesn't even arise it again that tells me we're at a different place like people flanagan at least subconsciously thinks the audience isn't going to care about that point it's not about could there be the, i mean i don't know if this is right but it's almost like it's not about could there be a supernatural it's more about if there is christianity isn't the account um maybe that's a little more mm. polemical than you guys would want to put it but that's that's right where i am right now and that's interesting to me and yeah. it raises questions that i don't have answers for right now hmm. Hmm. i want i i would love i would love to hear both of your answers to these questions because i i do yeah, not feel i've yet say, taken I hold of it i thought the depiction of pharisaism and i i think the i think it's a fascinating way of depicting uh Pharisaism's relationship to religion, which is very similar to Paul's critique, well, really of aesthetic practices, Paul in Colossians 2. But Jesus says this, you know, that actually it's ultimately about indulging the flesh. I think that's fascinating to see exactly how that's the case. You can say that and it sounds kind of like a funny move, but it's a very good depiction of exactly how it's the case that apparently aesthetic religion can ultimately be about serving the flesh. And I thought that was a good depiction. And I just think the whole theme of uh, raising the question of aesthetics and truth, beauty and truth, and how those relate to each other, I think is something worth reflecting on. And I think to the extent that it's trying to feel the tension between those two things, I think that's a actually a healthy, in its own way, gesture, albeit one that, um, uh, 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 in a way, I'd say it this way, it's, a, it's almost a critique that I think a good Christian in our moment has to feel the force of and have an answer to. How is it that your religion isn't this? You can't just say it's not. Huh. Uh, you actually need to be, you actually need to give a plausible account of how it's not. Uh, and I think feeling that pressure is actually a healthy thing for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess the last thing I'll say is um, I think that one of the things I walked away with, with this story was how, even though I agree with both of you that this is trying to sort of be polemical because there is no foundation on the Christian tradition and he's trying to portray it as something conflating ugliness and beauty. Uh, he still bends, nevertheless, Joe mentioned um, Tom Holland and uh, Dominion. He nevertheless is still crushed by the weight of the Sermon on the Mount that the meek inherit the earth uh, because mm -hmm. literally the meek win mm -hmm. in the end. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones that survive. They're the ones that actually have life opposed to being dead. Uh, so I think that he's, he's in spite of what I think he's trying to do overall with the project, not that I think that he has an agenda, maybe there's something there, but the general thrust of the whole movie to call into question these sort of weird practices by Christians that drink blood and yada, 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 that can be instrumentalized and manifested in cult. He nevertheless rests on uh, the the paralyzed young faithful girl uh, that escaped and watches the world burn behind her and she has life. Yeah. So um, I think that that to me was the most striking moment. Like the sun comes up, 
the darkness is obliterated and the meek inherit the earth. Uh, even with his sort of wrestling with Catholicism and then going into atheism, he nevertheless still grabs a hold of virtue at the end. And yeah. it's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, all right. Well, Paul, thank you, brother. Thanks, brother. Uh, yes. And we'll have you back on. Maybe yeah. we can do this intermittently. Like yeah, we'll just we need pick to have a, a series yeah. or a movie or a documentary or whatever. And we'll, we'll just do, do the analysis. I'd love yes. to. Dale and Joe, thanks so much. I, I love, really love the conversation. And thanks for putting up with my, my terrible 2008 internet. Oh, no <laughs> worries. Okay. Yes. Uh, Joe, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. And we will see you all next time. See you.